Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Today we're going to look back and discuss the most searched Bible verse of 2020, and I'm guessing it's not what you expect. We're also going to look at how Jesus helps us respond to our fears and how to conquer some of the fears many of us share moving into the new year in 2021 with a lot of chaos, confusion, and a lack of clarity with the COVID virus and many other problems we're struggling with. Before we get there, Bishop Barron, good to see you and uh, welcome to this second video here in the new year of 2021. Hey, Brandon, good to see you as always. I sent you this uh, website result survey of a Uversion Bible app study. So Uversion is the most mm -hmm. popular Bible app in the world. I think they're on, I don't know, 100 million phones around the world. Um, and they track all sorts of analytics of what Bible verses people are reading, what they're searching, what they're highlighting. Notably, they saw an increase by 80% in 2020 with nearly 600 million uh, worldwide users' views, I think it is. Um, so uh, first of all, before we get into the most popular verses, it seems like more people are searching the Bible than ever before, at least online. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that, I'm assuming, an exciting discovery yeah. for Catholics like us? Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, again, the internet makes this stuff uh, accessible in a way it wasn't before. So I'm delighted to hear that, actually. And if it took, in some ways, the crisis of 2020 to bring people back to the Scripture, well, okay, it, it's often gone that way in history, hasn't it? Uh, during times of difficulty, people turn to the Word of God. So, you know, uh, three cheers for the internet and for social media in that way. I think in most years, the most popular verse on version is either John 3.16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, or I think we did an episode last year covering last year's most popular verse, which was the one from Jeremiah yeah. where it says, you know, God's got plans for you to prosper and succeed and, right. and all that. But this year, there was an unexpected contender. Um, the number one most read Bible verse on version in 2020 was Isaiah 41. 10. I'm going to read it for you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That verse mm. was not only the most searched verse of 2020, but the most read and the most bookmarked. People wanted mm. to come back to it again and again. What do you think about that verse being number one? Are you surprised? No. I mean, 2020 was a terrible year, wasn't it? And stirred up a lot of our anxieties. You know, the psychologists in the 20th century talked about existential anxiety. So I might be afraid of something right in front of me. There's a, there's a particular threat. But then underneath all the particular threats, and often precipitated by a number of particular threats, there's this deep level fear, this existential anxiety, which is born of our finitude. And a year like 2020, when, I mean, let's face it, I mean, hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens are dying from this disease. All of us are, are locked in. We can't see each other. That's going to stir up some deep-level fears. And you could argue, Brandon, that the Bible is a response to fear. You know, perfect love, and that's what God is, casts out, not hate, says the Bible, but fear. And so in some ways, that's the primordial struggle between fear and love. So I, I'm not surprised, A, that uh, 2020 kicked up 
of that fear, and that B, people turn to the Bible to find an answer precisely to this spiritual problem. So those first few words of the Isaiah verse, do not fear. For us Catholics, they obviously call to mind the great Pope St. John Paul II, who made that one of his major themes and commendations of his papacy. Can you talk about what these words meant for John Paul and mm. why you think he considered them so important? Well, you know what's amazing about John Paul there is you could say, well, yeah, I mean, any Christian will claim a phrase like, you know, do not be afraid. And, you know, is that a nice, pious thing to say? But when you remember that young Karl Wojtyla endured first the horrific oppression of the Nazis, so his hometown of Krakow is, is overwhelmed, the country is uh, held captive, uh, people being murdered right and left. The Auschwitz concentration camp is about a 35-minute drive from where John Paul II uh, lived at the time. Then, when the Nazis are, are are finished, we then have the communists come in with maybe a slightly less oppressive form of, of dictatorship, murderous regime. John Paul II, as a young man, experienced the very worst of humanity, and that's not an exaggeration. The 20th century, arguably the worst on record in terms of destructiveness, moral collapse, and John Paul II lived in Poland, which is right where the, the, the pincer movement of these two deeply dysfunctional ideologies, Nazism from the West, Communism from the East, met. And so here's someone coming of age in that maelstrom. And yet, when he comes of age and he's elected pope, he can say, do not be afraid. I mean, if anyone in the 20th century had a right to say, be afraid, it would have been Karl Wojtyla, right? Like, look, everybody, do, take the route of, of Jean-Paul Sartre or, or of, of Albert Camus or of, you know, the, the existentialists. And yeah, life is, is absurd. And it, of course, we're afraid all the time. But he of all people could say, do not be afraid. Witnesses to his Christian faith. Because finally, it's only Christianity which proclaims God's own journey into the heart of what frightens us the most. It's only that that gives us the capacity to say, do not be afraid, even in the face of the worst uh, suffering. So that, that makes John Paul a very intriguing figure in the 20th century. When you read the Old Testament, you'll see uh, reiterated again and again, don't be afraid, have no fear, don't worry, don't be anxious. And then at the, sort of the pivotal hinge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, when the angel Gabriel comes mm -hmm. to Mary, he tells her, do not be afraid. And then we see Jesus picking up that thread throughout the rest of the New Testament. Talk about why, why this is so central to salvation history. Why do you think God keeps having to remind his people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid? Well, I'll go back to, um, to the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich, whom I studied when I was doing my doctoral work quite a bit. Tillich, uh, who came of age in the First World War, so he was a, um, a chaplain during World War I, he endured the worst of that horrific war. So the overture of the great uh, demonic opera that was much of the 20th century was the First World War, right? 
it was a, a weekend's work in World War I to kill 50 or 60,000 people. Paul Tillich was there as a chaplain trying to proclaim the Christian gospel in that setting. He reflects on presiding over a mass burial of you know, thousands of these young men who have been killed. So Tillich, who went through all of that, and then tried to make sense of Christianity in the wake of it. Well, one of his one-liners, and I come back to it a lot, Tillich said, finitude in awareness is anxiety. It's an interesting line. Those three beats, finitude in awareness is anxiety. In other words, to be finite and to know it is to be afraid, right? So Tillich says, for example, there are four great qualities or marks of finitude. Time, space, causality, and substance. I'll just say something. I know that sounds very abstract. They're not, though. As a finite person, I live in time. You live in time. We all do. Does that produce anxiety? Yes. Because where's time going? Well, this is going in one direction, right? I'm not getting any younger, as we say. I'm getting older. Time is always moving forward toward what? And he would have been following Heidegger here. Sein zum Tode, as, as Heidegger said, being toward death. Because we exist in time, we're heading toward death. And there's nothing we can do to stop it, right? Therefore, to live in time is to live in anxiety. Secondly, Tillich says, we live in space. We're spatial beings. We live in a particular place. Does that produce anxiety? Yes. And now I can witness to this, having moved out to California a few years ago. Uh, what did I experience here? Well, that terrible Thomas fire. As this fire was kept, just was sweeping across the California hillsides until it came right to my house. And twice I was chased out of my space, right, which was threatened by these flames. Just a, a few weeks uh, after that, a, a great rainstorm came and this mudslide swept 25 people in Montecito, 10 minutes from my house to their deaths. Space is always threatened. It's always in danger. Talk to anyone who's been through an earthquake. What that's like when what you take to be terra firma, right, the, the, the reliable earth, suddenly shakes. To be spatial is to be afraid. Thirdly, Tillich says, to be finite is to be caused. Now, we talk a lot, Brandon, about the argument from contingency, right? That means things exist but don't have to exist. Therefore, they've been brought into being by something extrinsic to themselves. Well, that's a very uh, objective, abstract way to talk about it. But Tillich says, what does it feel like to be contingent? The fact that my being, well, it was contingent upon my parents. It's contingent right now upon the room I'm in here and its temperature. It's contingent upon the food that I ate just a few hours ago. If, if food was taken away, I, I'd die. It's contingent upon the drink that I can take in. It's contingent upon the oxygen in the, in the atmosphere. The point is to live as a caused thing is to live in fear because any of those things could be taken away. And indeed, one day they will be taken away, right, when the health of my body uh, uh, deteriorates. Finally, Tillich says, as a finite being, I'm a substance. 
I'm not the sheer act of being itself. That's what God is. I'm a substance. I'm a thing. I'm a particular thing, which means, as Aristotle knew, I can undergo substantial change. That means I can be eliminated. I can be I can be destroyed, right? Like any substance. The camera I'm speaking to, you're on the screen in front of me here. I, I knock that with a hammer, I can destroy it. Any substance can be destroyed. A planet uh, will be destroyed someday when the sun envelops it, etc. Time, space, causality, substance. Finitude in awareness is anxiety. When I become aware of my finitude, I become afraid, right? Now, what's the answer? Existentialism, which Tillich knew very well, said, get used to it. <laughs> That's the way it is, right? What's the answer to the Bible? Be not afraid. How come? Because the Bible orders us beyond our finitude to a reality, namely God, who transcends these limitations. Now, mind you, how do we name God? Well, he's not in time. He's eternal. He's outside of time. God's not in space. God is ubiquitous, we say. He's omnipresent. God is not contingent upon causes outside of himself. And God is not a substance. God is a sheer act of being itself. Now, see, what's interesting, Brandon, what Tillich has done here, I think it's very clever, he's taken the classical philosophical language we use about God, and he's shown the spiritual power of it. You say, well, oh yeah, God's eternal. Okay, I guess. So what? Well, the so what is because I, I, I can't save myself. I, I'm a temporal reality. And listen, I can't reach out to you because you're a temporal reality too. I can't reach out to anybody in this world because they're all in time as I am. What does the Bible say? Only in God will my soul be at rest. See, so when I orient my life not to my own ego or anything in the world, now walk through the last three, I won't belabor it, space. Nothing in space is going to solve the anxiety that comes from being spatial, only when I'm ordered to God. Nothing in this world is going to solve my problem of being caused, because they've all been caused too. They're in the same boat I am. Only in God is my soul at rest. The point is, the point is, if finitude in awareness is anxiety, and it is, the only solution to that is to order my life to that which transcends all these things, namely to God. And that's why, Brandon, from the heart of the Bible comes again and again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The voice of God, right? Karl Wojtyla heard that voice as a young kid, which is why he was able to endure. Look at the threats he faced. That's why he was able to endure them. So sorry for that long-winded sermon, but I think that's why the, the category of fear and the overcoming of fear is such an important one. Let's talk about the relationship between fear and love. You alluded to that verse earlier from 1 John 4.18. You'll hear it at weddings fairly often, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How's this work? Where, where does fear come from? It comes from a focusing in on my own finitude, right? What's love? Love is overcoming 
the incurvatus in se move. And mind you, Tillich was deeply indebted to Augustine. That was his favorite theologian. And the more I'm incurvatus in May, I'm caved in on myself, the more afraid I'm going to be. Love is always this um, um, extroverted move. It's the move outside. And the trajectory of love is in the direction of God, who is love, see? Which is why perfect love, God, casts out all fear. See, and if that's right, Brandon, it's interesting, is fear at the root of all sin? And, and I think you would say yes, even prior to pride. See, because what does fear do? I'm afraid, and so I, I cling defensively. I'm afraid, and so I lash out at you. See, we're all sinners, right? Analyze your sin in terms of fear, and it can be very illuminating. Why am, I, why am I doing these things that I know are bad? I know they're self-destructive. I think if you are honest and you look deeply enough, you're going to find at the bottom of your sin something like fear. Well, perfect love, I, I live my life now in God, casts out that fear. And so I can live... I can live now in imitation of the divine love. I don't have to live curvatus and say, but I can live now with this openness of, of heart and mind and so on. I think that's how it works. But boy, what a fundamental spiritual dynamic that is. You've said often in your preaching, Bishop, that what each of us most ultimately fears is death. Yeah. And I think especially in light of the COVID crisis, this has become more poignant and pressing for a lot of people, most of us know somebody who's either contracted COVID or maybe even died as a result of it. Whenever we think of our own deaths, it's harrowing. When we think of the deaths of others, we're equally afraid. Um, talk about how we can overcome this fear of death. Well, we can never really in this life utterly overcome it because think again of Tillich's categories, time, space, causality, substance. Why they're so fear-inducing ultimately has to do with death, doesn't it? Because I'm in time, I'm moving toward death. Because I live in space, I can be threatened to the point of death. Because I'm caused, uh, those causes can be taken away and I'll die. Because I'm a substance, I can undergo substantial change. See, so all of them are related to, ultimately, the fear of death. So as long as I'm in this finite space, I can't just obliterate, I can't eliminate that fear. What I can do, though, is place it within a wider context. So I'm not just stuck in this world, but I'm living now in God. So when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, the old I, right, the I is the sinful self caught in time, space, causality, and substance, and therefore clinging in fear. But when I've, I've displaced my heart, if you want, onto Christ. It's Christ now living in me. I can handle the fear. It doesn't go away, but I found something that's more fundamental, that's more uh, enduring. Think of people, you know, Voitie was a good example, but, you know, some of these wonderful witnesses who spent decades in prison and in solitary confinement, unable to accomplish any of their goals and so on, unable to attain the goods they wanted, but yet they, they, they endured. How do you explain that? But they were able to relocate the center, 
So it was outside of the fearful, finite self, and it was on to Christ. They found the interior castle. They found the inner wine cellar of John, uh, John of the Cross. They found uh, that place where no storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that rock I'm clinging. It's that displacement of your life onto God that's at the heart of the spiritual life. It's why we pray every day, isn't it, Brandon? You know, and I do my holy hour in the morning. Um, look, I, I'm in time, space, causality, and substance. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded on all sides by my finitude, therefore by fear. But in prayer, I'm trying to find this new center. You know, I'm trying to find the Christ who lives within me that gives me courage despite my finitude. Let's close with this, Bishop. As we move into the new year, there's still a lot of unknowns regarding COVID, especially when it's going to ramp down, how long it's going to last, um, the effects it's having religiously with our churches, economically with businesses, health-wise with our friends yeah. and loved ones. Uh, as a pastor, as a bishop, what would you like to say to the people of God, many of whom are, are very fearful of what this new year of 2021 will bring? Yeah, first of all, you're right. We don't know what it's going to bring. Who, who guessed 2020? You know, when that year started, this uh, last year, um, we had a bishop's retreat in early January, you know, and I mean, I, I wasn't thinking at all about this rather difficult year that was coming. We had the ad limina visit with the Pope, and we all were, you know, kind of in good, happy mood about that. No one saw 2020 coming. What's 2021? I don't know. I don't know. I live in time, and that's part of the, the dilemma of it, is I, I can't see the future. I, I row into the future as in a rowboat, that's to say, facing backward. I'm not facing forward. I don't, I don't know where I'm going as I row the boat. That's how we all have to live, you know? Having said that, what do you do? You stay close to the fire. You stay ordered to the basics of the spiritual life. That means prayer, to spend a lot of time. It means the Mass. It means the sacraments. It means being rooted in Christ. It means cooperating with the graces that come to you, cooperating with these great theological gifts that we call faith, hope, and love, right? To live in faith means what? I walk by faith, not by sight. It means I, I don't see everything clearly, but I have a confidence. To live in hope. I, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I hope because I know that God is in charge of the world. Most importantly, love. What's love? That's what's, what God is, right? So when you love, and that could be the simplest thing, you are participating in God. In fact, you have found the place that transcends uh, the categories of finitude. I don't know if that makes sense. That's maybe the most important thing to, to get. The simplest act of love has now transposed your life into a higher setting. You have indeed stepped out of the limits of finitude. That's cooperating with the most important of the theological virtues. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. You can send in any question you have for Bishop Barron by visiting the website askbishopbarron.com. Today, we got a great question from a young postulant of the OFMs. He's asking about 
how Jesus's divine and human uh, features interact together. Here he is. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Gaspar, and I'm a postulant with the OFMs here in Silver Spring, Maryland. My question is, when Jesus took on a human nature, was he also subject to things like doubt or ignorance? Thank you, and God bless. Yeah, thanks for that question. And when I was teaching theology, that question would come up a lot, and it's come up in the great tradition. Notice something, please, that when the church talks about Jesus' identity, it hardly ever psychologizes about him. It, it uses metaphysical language. So he's the hypostatic or personal union of two natures, divine and human, coming together in one rational supposit. That would be like the, the way the church talks about it. Uh, one person, divine, which lights up or instantiates two natures, divine and human. Okay, that's metaphysical language. That's the way the church tends to talk about Jesus. True God, true man, without mixing, mingling, or confusion, but in the unity of one divine person. Now notice, in none of that have I psychologized about the inner life of Jesus. Like what it's like to be inside that metaphysical arrangement. And I think there's something wise about that because we don't really know. You know, there are indications in the Gospels, Jesus in his humanity, uh, you know, showing signs of, of how he's culturally determined, how he's limited in this way and that, how he seems to not be aware of some things. So I would say whatever is congruent with the human nature and not incompatible with his divine nature, we would say, yeah, he experiences that. Whatever is, is um, not congruent with his divinity, well, we shouldn't affirm that of his humanity. But what it's like to experience that from the inside, I don't really know, and no one really knows. And so, in a way, the church, I think, is saying to us, don't press that question because there isn't really a good answer to it. Affirm the bracingly objective language of the great tradition about the divinity and humanity of Jesus that come together without mixing, mingling, or confusion in the unity of one divine supposite. Stay with that. That's correct and orthodox. What it's like to be in that space, I don't know. I don't know. Well, thanks to everybody for listening and watching this episode. I'm going to ask you to do something I haven't asked in many, many months, and that's to leave a review of this show. If you go to your favorite podcasting service, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google Play or somewhere else, search the Word on Fire show leave a review. It takes just a couple seconds, but it's really beneficial to us because the more reviews the show has, the more that these services recommend it to others. So maybe you've been listening for years, maybe just for a few months, but if you like the show, please do us a favor, take a few seconds, leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.